If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You end up with this kind of really sort of jigsaw puzzle of historical things you need to know in order to tell the story really fully and vividly. That was Philippa Gregory reflecting on her career as a historical novelist. As the Osage became more and more wealthy, primarily in the early 1920s, they began to be mysteriously murdered one by one uh, for their oil money. And that was David Gran discussing an episode of murder and conspiracy in 1920s America. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our third podcast of April 2017. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. This month, the historical novelist Philippa Gregory is celebrating 30 years since the publication of her first book, Wideacre. Since then, she's written numerous best-selling novels, focusing especially on the Tudor and Plantagenet periods. Her novel The Other Berlin Girl became both a BBC drama and a major film, while her Cousin's War series of books inspired the 2013 TV series The White Queen. Our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans, headed to London a little while back to speak to Philippa about her career as a novelist, the history behind her books and the world of historical fiction. Here's what she had to say. So, Philippa, you've written about many historical characters, from Anne Boleyn to Elizabeth Woodville. Uh, Your latest novel opens in 1501 and focuses on Margaret Tudor, Mary Tudor, the Queen of France and Catherine of Aragon. How do you decide upon the figures or the characters that are going to be your protagonists? Um, This particular one, Three Sisters, Three Queens, is an interesting novel because I knew I wanted to write about Margaret Uh, Queen of Scotland and Mary, Queen of France, because they are the really neglected sisters of Henry VIII. So, and I really think that that's because of the sexism of history, which is, I really believe that historians just have an instinctive sense that we shouldn't have more than about 20% of the historical record should be occupied by women. 20% just seems about right. It was, at one stage, it was a number of portraits of women in the National Gallery, with a number of women in the military. It's just like 50% would be way too much, um, but about, you know, under a quarter. So they're really neglected. We've got Henry's wives and we've all 
read a great deal and some of us written about Henry's wives, but Henry's sisters are very little researched, comparatively speaking. So I knew I wanted to, in a sense, rescue them from the footnotes. And I knew also that they had both had really extraordinary lives, made extraordinary choices. Uh, so I knew that there would be a fantastic story there to tell. And then it became apparent to me as I was looking at their lives how, in particular, Margaret and Catherine of Aragon are rivals for both position in terms of they, either of them might well be the mother of the next King of England. If Catherine of Aragon can't get a son, then Margaret's boy is the only Tudor heir. Uh, and, and, of course, they both miscarry and lose children. So you have this incredible rivalry in terms of their position. And Margaret is, you know, Queen of Scotland and Catherine is Queen of England. But even before then, you have the terrible rise and fall of Catherine of Aragon's life when she's Princess of Wales and then she's widow and neglected by the royal family. So there's this sort of rivalry and comparison which is in the historical record but which as far as I know, nobody before me picked up on. And once you started looking at them as, as a, a sense of cohort of women, these three royal women, you see that their lives would have been constantly compared one with the other by themselves and by other people. So you, you clearly have an eye for these stories, for finding these women within history that perhaps haven't been represented fairly or, or at all um, previously. You're coming at it as a, as a historian first. You have a PhD in 18th century literature. How do you begin your research for these novels? Oh, like exactly as if I was writing non-fiction, exactly as if I was writing a history. I have to really understand the biography of the women, so I start by reading um, all the biographies that I can get my hands on. And then uh, they sort of the discussion widens out, so then I start looking at the countries they're in or the societies they're in. Um, and then I start doing really, uh, it's really engaging, but it's very, very detailed uh, history research. So whether people are inside saddles or not at that stage, what people are planting in the fields, when uh, Margaret rides north, how far does she travel each day? What places does she stop at? What sort of are, what are the conditions of those places? And you find yourself getting into all sorts of other sorts of history. So history of medicine comes up, um, history of obstetrics comes up, of course, when you're talking about women's lives and childbirth. Uh, sexual practices come up. It, you end up with this kind of really sort of jigsaw puzzle of historical things you need to know in order to tell the story really fully and vividly. So how do you balance that research then with the skill of entertaining, with drawing someone into a subject in historical fiction? That's probably the trickiest thing. The first thing I believe you have to do as a novelist is you have to give up your pride about how much you've learned. So, you know, the fact that you have a beautiful file all about, I don't know, some detail, uh, the tides or the working of a tidal mill. You go like, if she doesn't go to a tidal mill, this just has to be my hobby on this novel. So I know all this stuff, but like the reader doesn't need to know it. And you never, ever, ever go like, and here's my chance to get these fabulous facts in, which I have just recently learned and I'm so proud of. So you have to really, in a sense, do a great deal of research and know that you're not going to use it. But what it will do is it will inform you. And so you become 
authoritative in your descriptions as opposed to just, you know, imaginative. And then the thing is, is just uh, for me, I mean, I don't know how other people do it, but for me, I tell the story that I find absolutely irresistible and I stay on that story while it's irresistible. And if there's ever a moment where I go like, I'm a little tired of this or this seems to be repetitious or although it's her experience is repetitious, it's boring me, then I know it's going to bore the reader. So that then it's my job to find a way at, in using a literary technique to get round the, the dull bits because every life naturally has um, monotonous and tedious and longers. And in a sense, you, you can have a longer in the life, you're bound to. You can show a longer in a history because that's, in a sense, respecting the facts. But in a novel, you know, the reader doesn't want to go through 10 pages where nothing happens. That's not the job of an author. So when you represent these characters such as Anne Boleyn, such as Margaret Beaufort. Um, what do you think is the benefit for representing them in a fictional context as opposed to exploring them in an academic history paper? Um, th th that's a key question, and in a sense it's one that I address all the time, which is why am I writing a novel and not writing uh, history. Partly it's because I really love the novel form. So I would be a novelist whether or not I was a historian. I think I think it's a great art form. And when you bring it to history, I think you can really illuminate history with it, that you can talk about uh, inner truth. So you can speculate that, for instance, in a novel you can make it perfectly clear that Elizabeth doesn't marry because she cannot trust men, because she's had this traumatic experience of seeing her stepmothers murdered judicially murdered by her father and she's seen a stepmother neglected and she knows of a, a previous wife who was neglected to death. She has also an early sexual experience with someone who is executed. So she has this real connection in her mind between intimacy with someone and death and destruction, in most cases the destruction of the woman. Now, you can say that, lots of historians have said it, uh, psychologists have said it, but it's always speculation. We've got no evidence, we've got no writing from Elizabeth that makes that connection clear. But in a novel, you can write it in such a way that it is clear that that is the case. And because you're saying this is a novel, it's always authored. It's my view of Elizabeth. I'm not saying this is everybody's view of Elizabeth. I'm not even saying it's Elizabeth's view of Elizabeth. But I'm saying that's how I see her, and that's what I'm going to do. It's the individual author of the novel that, in a sense, gives us, uh, makes you free to give a picture of history, which you couldn't do as a historian, not if you were a good historian, though, of course, uh, there are lots of historians who say, I see it like this, and this is how I'm telling the story. But when you're a novelist and you do that, it's clear that you're doing it. And the other thing which I think is very interesting to me is that it may be that because you're writing fiction, you speculate, and it may be that you're actually telling a truth, though you don't know it at the time. So you're writing fiction, but you might be actually saying something that's true. And uh, I wrote of the death of Amy Dudley, uh, Robert Dudley's wife, and I suggested in my novel that she was murdered uh, in order to uh, discredit Robert Dudley forever. And that is, in fact, what her murder did. So nobody could think after his wife 
had died in suspicious circumstances that he could possibly marry the Queen and become King of England. And I suggested in the novel that she had been murdered when all of the history at the time and all of the evidence at the time was that she'd fallen down a short flight of stairs and broken her neck. And the favoured explanation was that she had osteoporosis, so her neck had broken, though it was only a short flight of stairs. Well, after I'd published the novel and offered this fictional explanation, uh, a historian then found the uh, inquest report from the coroner and found that there were two enormous holes in her skull and someone had hit her in, on the head with something like a claw hammer. She had definitely been murdered. And that seems to me to be one of the great powers of fiction, that you can say, I think this might have happened, I'm going to write it as if it happened, and on this occasion that actually was what happened. So, so do you think that's a, a benefit of historical fiction as a genre then, that it brings these wider questions to an audience that might not necessarily access it academically? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it always brings history to a wider audience. There are far more readers of fiction than there are of history. And there's an obligation in that also that you, when you do a flight of fancy, as I've just described, that you make that clear to the reader in an author's note. I always write an author's note at the end and say, uh, this is my view, this is a novel. If you want to know what current historians are thinking, uh, if you want to know what we absolutely are certain happened, here are a list of books that I read that you may find helpful. In terms of your own um the characters that you've found within history, are there any um, real surprises where you've started off assuming a character, uh, a, a figure's character, and then as your research has continued, you've very much changed the angle of their character in your writing? Yes, um, I'm, it happens so often that I now know that it will happen. So, uh, for instance, when I wrote a novel about Catherine Howard, I had read the very misogynistic versions of Catherine Howard's life. So I started off going like, she's very, very young and she's uh, apparently sexually active at a very young age and she marries a man old enough to be her grandfather and then she's beheaded for infidelity. And most historians have taken a very negative view of her. So at the best, you know, her greatest defender says she's really stupid. And, you know, other people accuse her of just being a slut um, in the most sexist, most critical language. So I started not very hopeful uh, as to how I was going to get on with her. And I just loved her. I mean, she's so young when she enters into this incredibly dangerous court and this incredibly dangerous world. There's no doubt in my mind that her first sexual experience is what we would now call abuse. She's so young and it's a tutor. Um, in her house, in her grandmother's household. So she has no control over her life at that level. She then believes herself to be engaged to be married. She has a, a child, you know, very young girl's romance. She considers herself to be married and uh, she's taken from this relationship and married to the King of England for whom she can have felt nothing but terrific distaste and horror. And the marriage was arranged by her uncle for his interests, not for her interests at all. And then she falls in love disastrously with one of the very, very attractive young men of the court. And she doesn't have the skills or the abilities 
to manage that in any way that's safe for her. So, and she's beheaded, still in her teens. You know, you go, this is, you can't condemn a young woman for the very, very trivial mistakes that she makes. Um, and you certainly can't justify her being put to death. So that was an example of someone that I thought that I would find uh, irritating, actually, and that I just, I'm absolutely on Catherine Howard's side now. Um, and I suppose other characters like Margaret Beaufort, who uh, I started writing thinking, for a start, I had just written The White Queen, so I was fully Yorkist. I was an absolute white rose wearing, fully paid up Yorkist. And then I went, I've got to write The Other Side. Uh, so it was a real wrench to, in a sense, absolutely do 180 and try and see it from the other point of view. And Margaret Beaufort is an absolute heroine. I mean, she has this inspiration early on that she is going to be the mother of the next King of England and she doesn't let anything stop her getting that. And in a sense, the Battle of Bosworth is won by Margaret Beaufort. It's her husband who's army swings the balance and she married him for his army at that particular day uh, after the marriage uh, after the battle and after Henry's on the throne uh, they as they go to a white marriage they virtually dissolve all connection between them because she doesn't need him anymore she's I mean she's fantastically determined and ambitious and she invents a title for herself she calls herself my lady the king's mother that nobody's ever called anybody before because that's exactly what she manages to achieve I mean you can't I don't think you can help but really admire her as you just alluded to, these uh, were often very dangerous times for um, these female figures to be living in. Uh, you have written in, in the, the forward to the new edition of Wideacre that you have um, an unrefined preference for happy endings. How do you reconcile that with writing about the tragic endings of so many of these female figures? Well, if you're a historian, you have to accept that everybody that you care about, everybody that you know about, everybody that you spent years working on is dead. And most of them have been dead for 500 years. So in a sense, there are no happy endings in history because everybody's dead. Um, you would have to have a very, very deep belief in reincarnation for that not to be um, depressing, really, sad. Um, what, again, what I think is the great strength of writing a novel, writing literature rather than writing a history or a biography, is that you can choose in a novel how you frame your story. You can choose when you start, you can choose when you end. Every single biography worth its salt starts with birth and sometimes with the antecedents. And I have to say I find it immensely boring because being born is of no merit to anybody really, it just happens. And also dying is not necessarily that interesting either. Some deaths, obviously, you have to have in your novel. So, like, I think it would be very, very hard to write The Other Boleyn Girl without acknowledging that Anne Boleyn's great trajectory ends in complete disaster. Death for herself, but also for her brother, for her father, for her mother, and the ruin of the Boleyn plan. Um, but Mary survives. And in a sense, what was so wonderful for me was that I could write a story in which you go like, yes, it, this is completely tragic. But also it is a story of somebody who gets through and who ends up inheriting what's left and has a husband of her own choosing and lives a life of 
respectability and uh, some pleasure, I'm sure, uh, outside South End. <laughs> like, it's a wonderful, wonderful ending. And uh, of course, every historical story does end in death, but sometimes the deaths are interesting and sometimes they are just death. Um, and if I possibly can, I like to frame a novel so it starts so it's really telling you about the person so it gives you a picture of the person which might be new to you and so very often the opening of the novel will show the character in a certain way and the closing of the novel will complete that story but it might not complete the life if you're writing a novel you don't have to go to death you can go to the to the end of the story which your particular story will not be the entire life and, and you, you do frame many of your stories in that way. And, for instance, your, your new novel, which I believe is out later in the year, on Jane Grey, people know how her story ends. They may think they know the, the whole story of her life. How do you go about reframing that so that people will be engaged with her story and, and want to read it? That one's been completely interesting because um, I'm actually talking about Jane Grey and her two sisters, and her two sisters outlive her. So it's a, a novel with three voices... Uh, the first voice is Jane Grey and her completely tragic death. And then that's the first third of the novel. And then the narrative's taken over by her sister Catherine, to whom Jane writes her last letter. So you've got this letter from this woman who becomes regarded as a saint um, to her sister saying, um, she actually says, learn you to die, because she's telling her that the world is is so flawed that she must prepare herself for death and and the kingdom of heaven and so Catherine our next heroine in line actually says what a miserable letter to write to your sister how incredibly unpleasant I don't want to learn to die I want to live and her entire life is absolutely reaching for love and for ambition and uh, she has two really beautiful little boys um, and she is in locked in struggle with her cousin Elizabeth I. But it's the, in a sense, Jane Grey's story is a wonderful passing on of this vision of how life should be to someone who rejects it completely. And at the very end of it, we end with um, the younger sister, Mary, who, uh, as the novel ends, has survived and lives a life as best as she can manage. So you you began um, writing novels in 1987. You've been writing for 30 years and you've covered um, Plantagenet, Kings and Queens and Tudors. The Tudors' popularity still endures. What do you think um, fires popular fascination with the Tudors today? It's extraordinary, isn't it? And um, clearly there is something about the Tudors that people want to have the stories told and retold. And what I've done in my career is tell them from the perspective of the, the extraordinary women who are part of the Tudor court and part of Tudor society. But clearly you can approach it from almost any angle. Um, as long as I think, I think there is an appetite for a f retelling of the story. Uh, and I think you have a sort of obligation to be fresh in that. But clearly people love the Tudors. For me, I think it's that it's a very, very interesting way of looking at tyranny, that if you look at Henry VIII's deterioration from really a golden prince that sort of rescued the, the kingdom on the death of his father into a person that 
people at the time called a mould warp, a sort of horrible beast that was deep in the bowels of England and was tending to the destruction of the country. I mean, he turns into an absolute monster in in the minds of contemporaries, as well as in our minds, people at the time thought he was crazy. And clearly, uh, anybody looking at him from our point of view, from a modern perspective, would think that there was something very, very, very seriously mentally wrong with Henry VIII. Um, so I think that, in a sense, there's, that, there's a great story to be told there, and it's about the corruption of power, it's about the rise of tyranny, it's about people's failure to step in and stop a tyrant becoming dangerous. And that's of perennial importance. That's of importance to us today, just as it was to the Tudors. So you've got that. I think the Tudor work of making England a nation uh, with a navy ultimately with an empire, that's obviously so materially important to us today that you've got that now. And from the point of view that I take of it, these extraordinary women whose stories are really new to us, but who clearly became agents of their own society and changed their own world in the most unlikely and dangerous circumstances, that's a real story for modern women who even today, are struggling to become agents of their own lives and, age and change the world uh, in circumstances which are much easier than the Tudor world, but which still have difficulty. That was Philippa Gregory. Her debut novel, Wideacre, has just been re-released in the UK, published by HarperCollins. Now here's a reminder that the April issue of BBC History magazine is currently on sale. In this month's edition, we have articles on the restoration of Charles II, a Tudor dictator, 19th century inventions, America's entry into the First World War, and women in popular history. You can get hold of the magazine in all good news agents in the UK and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. And if you'd like to take out a subscription, we currently have a great deal available for new subscribers in the United States, where you can try three issues of the magazine for a total of just $9.95, including postage. You can find out more and take advantage of this offer by visiting buysubscriptions.com forward slash history US. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down 
and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Now, film lovers out there may well have seen the recent movie, The Lost City of Zed, which was based on a book by the American journalist David Gran. Well, Gran, who's staff writer at The New Yorker, has just published his latest work, Killers of the Flower Moon. It explores a series of murders of the Osage Indian nation in the 1920s and the aftermath involving the fledgling FBI and a young J. Edgar Hoover. David spoke to Eleanor Evans. Uh, your book, Killers of the Flower Moon, explores the story of a series of murders in the in early 1920s Oklahoma, crimes which were to become the subject of one of the FBI's first major homicide investigations. Uh, the victims of the killings were predominantly members of the Osage Nation in Oklahoma. Can you introduce us to the Osage people and their land, and maybe tell us a bit about how their land came to be of particular significance in the early 20th century America? So the Osage uh, had once uh, controlled much of the Midwest of the country during the 17th century, the, controlled all the way from the edge of Arkansas all the way to the edge of the Rockies. And uh, they were a dominant nation. Uh, President uh, Thomas Jefferson in 1803 referred to them as that great nation. He also met with several Osage chiefs the following year and promised that they would be uh, treated like friends. Uh, but within a few years, they began to be driven off their land. And like so many Native American nations, um, were eventually bunched into reservations, uh, losing their territory. The Osage um, ended up in Kansas uh, on a reservation uh, in the 1800s. And they were promised that, OK, you'll finally be safe here and be left alone. Uh, but once more, by the 1860s, they were under siege by settlers. There were massacres. They were starving. And they knew they needed to move on. They were being driven off their land again. And an Osage chief famously stood up and he looked across where they could maybe go. And he said, we should go to this land in what would later become uh, northeast Oklahoma because it's rocky. It's infertile. You can't do agriculture. And maybe the white man will finally leave us alone. So they ended up going to this land. and. Lo and behold, this land turned out to be sitting upon some of the largest deposits of oil then in the United States. And by the early 20th century, the Osage began to become enormously wealthy. And they soon became the wealthiest people, not only in the United States, but per capita in the world. Can you tell us a little bit about how that wealth would be inherited from person to person within the tribe? Many um, Native American uh, nations um, were on reservations. And the U.S. government began to force them to break up these reservations. The process was called allotment. And it was done, um, in theory, uh, they would say, because they wanted to, quote unquote, civilize Native Americans and turn them into private property owners. It was also really done so that it would be easier to obtain their land. And this process happened to the Osage as well. They were allotted. Um, and their land was broken up. But the Osage had very cleverly negotiated in their treaty with the U.S. government 
that they would maintain all the subsurface mineral rights. So what this meant is even when their land began to be broken up, they communally controlled all the rights to what was underneath their land. Now, they had some hints that there was oil, but nobody suspected that it was sitting above these huge deposits. And so they were able to get this into the treaty. And sure enough, their surface territory and reservation gradually got gobbled up by settlers and disappeared. But the Osage maintained all this vast um, area underneath the land. And they really became the world's first underground reservation. And there were only about 2,000 or so Osage. And each one was granted what was called a head right. And a head right essentially meant that they had a share in the mineral trust. So that when prospectors came in and they wanted to lease the land or uh, ex to extract oil, and when they got were able to find oil, they had to pay royalties to the Osage. All this money went into a communal pot, and each Osage who had a head right got a percentage of it, a share of it. Um, and this was called a head right. And a head right could not be sold, and it could not be bought. It could only be inherited. And this was a way to keep that mineral trust within the hands of the Osage. So even as they lost their surface land, they were able to hold on to this, um, this underground reservation. They obviously came into this huge wealth. Um, how was it viewed by outsiders and by the government? So just to give you some sense of the Osage wealth, in 1923, these 2,000 or so Osage received what would be the equivalent today of about $400 million. And so they were enormously wealthy. And this, of course, belied longstanding stereotypes of Native Americans and American Indians that traced all the way back to the first contact with settlers. And so the press would come out and regale the uh, the populace with stories of, quote, unquote, the red millionaires or the, quote, unquote, plutocratic Osage. And they would describe how they lived in mansions and how they had chauffeurs. They were shocked to report that um, the Osage had white servants who did their menial tasks. Um, they re reported that while each American might own a car, each Osage owned 11 of them. So this caused a great sensation. It also caused a great deal of envy. And um, many, many people began to want to get some of that wealth for themselves. Uh, and as one Osage chief said, uh, they bunch us up down in this rocks. And now that it's worth millions, everybody wants to get a piece of it. So the feeling of outsiders was definitely uh, drawn along kind of racial, racial lines, social lines, social prejudices. It's almost hard to imagine. So the Osage were millionaires um, and they sent their children to the best boarding schools. They were very educated. But the U.S. government um, passed legislation that forced um, Osage, who they deemed to be, quote unquote, incompetent, which basically just meant you were a full blood Osage, um, that they would have to have a guardian, a white guardian who would oversee their wealth. And what this literally meant is that an Osage who was a millionaire who may be a chief of a great nation, uh, when he wanted to go to the store and buy toothpaste, he had a white guardian who had to authorize these purchases. And what this opened, not only was it greatly paternalistic uh, and racist, it opened up a system of enormous graft because these guardians began to skim and get kickbacks and to abscond with millions and millions of dollars of the Osage's money. So within this region, um, we then see, well, your book explores the Osage reign of terror. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about um, these killings and how they influenced the society? As the Osage became more and more wealthy, primarily in the early 1920s, 
um, they began to be mysteriously murdered one by one uh, for their oil money. And these crimes were astonishing in their breadth, in their various means. Um, I describe in the book how one Osage family, a woman named Molly Burkhart, and how her family became a prime target of this conspiracy. And one day in 1921 in May, her sister, older sister Anna, disappeared. A week later, her body was found in a ravine. Uh, She was shot in the back of the head. Um, Her mother soon dies of suspected poisoning. One day, Molly is in her house, and she feels it's about three in the morning. She's sleeping with her husband, and she feels this enormous explosion. Um, This explosion was so powerful, it shook all the houses uh, for miles in the area. Windows were blown out and shattered. People who were sitting on their chairs were literally blown backwards. She got up and went to the window, and she could see where her other sister, she had three other sisters, she had three sisters, uh, where her sister um, Rita's house had been. Um, and all she could see was a large orange fireball rising into the sky. And somebody had planted a bomb under her sister's house and blown it up, killing her sister, her sister's husband, and a white servant who lived in the house. So this just gives you some sense there were shootings. There were poisonings. There was a bombing. And um, these murders began to spread and target uh, various families, not just Molly's family. What was the reaction, both in the community and uh, the wider public reaction to these murders? Well, within the community, there was a sense of genuine terror. Nobody knew who would become the next target. People literally would string lights up around their houses at night so they would hollow out the darkness with a glow. They were so afraid of predators coming in to get them. Um, People wouldn't open their doors. Children weren't allowed to wander the streets. I mean, this was it was known as the Osage Reign of Terror, and the term Reign of Terror is overused. But in this case, it was appropriate. There was a genuine sense of terror. Nobody who knew who would be the next target. The few people who tried to investigate the crimes um, were themselves targeted. Uh, one man, uh, an oilman, went to Washington, D.C. Um, to try to get federal uh, officials to help. He brought with him just a Bible and a pistol. He was sent a telegram to the boarding house where he was staying to be careful. That evening after he arrived, he walked out of his boarding house. He was abducted. Somebody put a plastic bag over his head. He was found the next day in a ravine. Uh, He had been uh, strangled to death, his body beaten in. He had been stripped naked. Uh, And this was a warning sign uh, that nobody was safe and that they would hunt you down, uh, not just in Oklahoma. They would hunt you down across the country and that nobody was safe and nobody dare stop it. And so the sense of terror was just, um, you know, was palpable. Um, Now, within the white structure, many, all the lawmen in the area um, uh, were white. And so there was a great deal of prejudice. And because of that, many of these crimes went on to be unsolved, not just because people had been targeted, but also because there was just such racial prejudice that people did not treat the victims of these crimes like full-blooded human beings, which they were. And so um, many of the crimes were ignored. Uh, Molly Burkhardt, for example, pleaded for the authorities to investigate the cases, and she was often met with indifference. There was also a great deal of corruption at the time, and in some cases, the law enforcement and the establishment was actually complicit in the crimes. Um, so uh, the power structure was uh, – this was a genuine conspiracy where you had a power structure that was making millions and millions of dollars um, by – 
pilfering Osage money and by murdering them to get their money. And so um, there was a there was a complicity. There was a silence. There were willing executioners. And um, and so it's part of the tragedy of these cases um, uh, that the way society responded, you know, it's 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 pretty abhorrent um, that for many years bodies piled up and nobody did a damn thing. You touched on there the pressure that uh, Molly Burkhart applied to get the murders investigated. And also in the book, you mentioned that the Osage people used their own money to fund some of the investigations, which led to the FBI's involvement. Can you talk a little bit about that? It's important to understand that um, even though this is not that long ago, the 1920s um, was a remarkably lawless time in the United States. Um, there was very few competent local police forces. There was very little forensics, um, very little training. There was a good deal of corruption. Um, Molly Burkhardt did everything she could to try to get help. She issued using her money to, uh, for rewards. Um, they hired private investigators and there were teams of private investigators, but often the private investigators were themselves easily bought off by the by the killers or themselves were corrupt. Eventually, the Osage uh, Tribal Council issued a resolution, a formal resolution. It's a document I quoted in the book um, in a very formal way, pleading for federal authorities to send in uh, investigators. And eventually these pleas do reach a then very obscure branch, or was then very obscure branch of the Justice Department, the U.S. Justice Department. Uh, the branch then was called the Bureau of Investigation, but we would later know it as the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI. And this became um, one of the FBI's first major homicide cases, and also one of the first major homo- homicide cases of its new director, J. Edgar Hoover. Can you tell us a little bit about J. Edgar Hoover and how he approached the Osage murders case? So um, J. Edgar Hoover um, was named uh, acting director in 1924. He'd been deputy director before. Um, this case actually went to the FBI in 1923, and he was involved as deputy director and then was in charge of the case when he became acting director in 1924. And uh, he was only 29 in, in 1924. Um, he was then skinny, uh, did not look the way he looked in later life. He had dreams of building a bureaucratic empire, but at the time he was still very insecure in his job. Um, he tried to professionalize the bureau. Um, to a large extent, um, and to bring in more formal training, college educations, adopting more forensics. Um, but the Bureau initially really badly bungled this case. And for two years, there was no arrests. And most famously, they had made a huge, uh, embarrassing, um, uh, bloody mistake, which is they got an outlaw, a guy appropriately named Blackie, um, and they decided they were going to use him as an informant. And so they took him out of prison and uh, they were supposed to keep him under surveillance. But instead, he managed to slip his tail. He proceeded to rob a bank and kill a police officer. So Hoover, um, facing a potential scandal, uh, at last turned the case over to an old frontier lawman, a man named Tom White, a former Texas Ranger. He stood about 6'4". He was an old cowboy who grew up in a log cabin. Um, he did not quite fit the image of the new hires at the, at the Bureau under Hoover. He was not college educated. Um, but Hoover was desperate to get results. And he turned the case over to uh, White, 
who led the investigation and ended up putting together an undercover team to lead the investigation. And this uh, team was quite extraordinary. Um, he took several old frontier agents. Um, one of them posed as an insurance salesman. Um, before this man had become a lawman, he'd actually sold insurance. Incredibly enough, he actually set up a, an insurance office in town on the reservation, and he, sh and he sold real insurance policies. Uh, two other undercover operatives, one in his cattlemen, and perhaps most remarkably, um, uh, an American Indian agent was recruited. And um, there were no statistics back then, so we don't know for sure. But he was probably the only American Indian agent in the Bureau uh, at the time, especially given the prejudices. Uh, and he went in as well undercover. And they began to infiltrate the region. And they did this partly because there was so much terror. They, they didn't think they could get people to talk. But they also did it because... Um, anyone who was going in to try to stop the killings were being killed. And so um, they were marked men. And this was a very dangerous operation. And in many ways for Tom White, it became both a criminal operation, a, a criminal investigation, but it was almost like a spy operation because there were moles, there were double agents, there were threats of, of triple agents. The operatives were being followed and trailed while they were carrying out their investigations. Um, they were threatening to tear down um, a very powerful uh, system and structure. And what they began to discover was, first of all, the guardians who had been appointed to, quote unquote, uh, protect um, the Osage and their fortunes were instead themselves, in many cases, most cases, uh, criminals themselves. Um, these were, in theory, the leading citizens in society. They were often bankers and lawmen and politicians. Um, these people were the ones who were guardians, but they were, in effect, using their power to steal and graft. And it's important to understand that there was just an enormous amount of corruption. The Bureau itself, the FBI, um, had just come out of a great oil corruption scandal where members of the Bureau and members of the Justice Department were taking kickbacks from uh, oil men and, and, um, uh, uh, and taking kickbacks from criminals to let them go free. And so the Bureau itself was trying to emerge from its own corruption scandal. So all this corruption, this kind of sinister, garish corruption – is part of the backdrop in which this investigation is taking place. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the legal system and how it functioned at the time to protect the people who committed these horrible crimes? Law enforcement back in the 1920s, I, I was shocked. I mean, when I begin these stories, I know very little about them. And I spent almost nearly half a decade on this story. And I was shocked by just how a lawless parts of the United States was back then, meaning it was very the legal system was very fragile. Um, often, if there was justice, it was meted out by by the barrel of a gun. Um, there was a great deal of corruption. Um, most law enforcement didn't have training, and um, but on a deeper level, many people in these communities, especially where the Osage community, there was so much money, and so law enforcement um, and politicians were often either directly involved in the crimes or were bought off or were quietly complicit. And um, in many ways, this story, to, in my eyes, is really about the birth of a modern country, um, at least the way we think of the United States as a modern country today. It was the birth of uh, the beginning of, of establishing uh, legal institutions. Um, initially, when they captured one of the masterminds, one of the main criminals, 
even when they caught him, they didn't know if they could ever prosecute him because they didn't know if they could get 12 jurors, given the prejudice at the time, to even uh, rule against him, despite the abundance of evidence. And so um, these forces are all working out at this time. And so um, this is the emergence of, uh, of American legal institutions, the emergence of more scientific detection, the emergence of what might be called professionalism. Uh, it's a kind of a simple, easy term, but some one we tend to take for granted in this day and age. And just to give you an example, Tom White is in many ways the embodiment of this transition, the man who leads the investigation that is uh, successful, at least in many regards. Um, he grew up in a log cabin. His father was a frontier lawman. Um, when Tom White was young, he watched his father uh, hang a man. Um, this was kind of a time of raw justice. And by the time in the 1920s, when he's leading the investigation, he's struggling to use fingerprints. He is learning about handwriting analysis, which becomes a pivotal part of this case. He is um, wearing a suit and a fedora rather than uh, riding on a horseback carrying a, a pearl-handled pistol. And the thing that he hates most is he has to file lots of paperwork. And so he embodies in many ways the emergence of the country, uh, of the United States, as we will come to know it. And also, Molly Burkhardt, in many ways, is a transitional figure. Um, she grew up in a wigwam, um, which is essentially a, a lodge. It's like a basically a large teepee. And um, when she was young, she spoke only Osage, and she wore a traditional blanket. And within 30 years, she's living in a mansion uh, with a white husband, um, with the chauffeurs, and speaking English. And so even in her own life, she represents the straddling, as does Tom White, a straddling not only of two centuries, but in many cases, and at least in Molly's case, the straddling of two civilizations. What did the Osage murders case come to represent for J. Edgar Hoover? I mean, Hoover, you could see all the elements of Hoover's character, even early on back then in his earliest stage, which is, you know, he wanted to resolve these cases, but he was probably less concerned with justice uh, than he was with his own reputation and cementing his power. And um, the men and the, the agents and operatives who did the real work to help break uh, at least part of the conspiracy, he would never acknowledge publicly. He then buried them and ignored them or fired them and took the credit himself. And in many ways, um, the case was important because it represented some of the good side of Hoover, which was the beginning of trying to professionalize law enforcement, to modernize it, to make it more systemic, to adopt more scientific means of detection. He deserves enormous credit for those things, but he also exploited the case to burnish his own reputation and to create himself into what would ultimately become one of the most autocratic and dangerous bureaucrats in the history of the United States. Can you talk a little bit about how the reign of terror was um, covered up, how it was um, almost wiped from from memory. What is so shocking in this story is that we often like to think of evil as a singular figure. And in this case, there was one man who was an embodiment in many ways of evil. Um, but we like to think of in a, in a crime story that there's kind of a singular figure. And if you catch that figure and purge it, um, society returns to normal. But this is a case where there were the conspiracy and the conspirators, um, there were so many of them. Many of them on the outside seemed like perfectly ordinary law-abiding citizens, but they were 
participants and they would cover up the crimes. Um, uh, lawmen would uh, cover up murders. Um, people who were burying victims would cover up the fact that the person they were burying had a gunshot wound in their head or that their body had been poisoned. Um, there was a complicity of silence by even those who were not directly profiting. The fact that these people were Osage, that is that they were Native Americans, allowed these crimes to be covered up and to be treated differently than if the victims had been white. And because of that, the crimes went on for many years. And the truth be said, even though the Bureau was able to resolve many of the cases, and Tom White, who was in many ways a very good man, who was quietly a good man, and there's a lot of goodness in the story. There's not just evil. But even with the Bureau's efforts, that the breadth of the conspiracy was far wider and far darker than the Bureau ever exposed. What are the reasons that have prevented these cases from being found and talked about until your book? Well, I think to some degree, Hoover exploited the case early on and it, it got a fair amount of attention, especially um, after some of, the, some of the criminals were arrested and prosecuted. But um, by the 1930s, there were other cases that Hoover used from the war on crime. There was Dillinger, there were other outlaws. Um, he paid less attention to this case. But also, I think the victims don't write history. I mean, it's a cliche, but it's true. And so many of the victims or people, even though they had wealth, were more on the margins of society. And there was a great deal of racial prejudice. And um, I think there was kind of, whether consciously or unconsciously, an excising of this from history. I mean, I was shocked that I had never read about this case in any books uh, when I was growing up. I mean, this is unquestionably one of the more sinister crimes in American history, uh, one of the worst racial injustices in American history, also an incredibly important chapter in American history because um, this, these forces of the clash between uh, Native Americans and, and white settlers was playing itself out in the 20th century. Um, and yet, you know, it was largely ignored. Now, I should make it abundantly clear that it was not ignored by the Osage. The Osage remember this history to this day, and for them it's living history. It remains living history. Uh, but for most people in the United States and beyond, um, they've never heard of this. I had never heard of this. In what context should we remember the, the, the Osage reign of terror today? Well, I think it's important that we remember this because it is a part of our history, and for too long it has been overlooked. Um, uh, I think the, the, the victims have a right to have their story recorded. And I think the criminals um, deserve to be remembered. Uh, often in criminal cases, and this is one where many of the cases did go unresolved, and I think history can come in and hopefully provide at least some accounting where the victim stories are finally heard and memorialized. And also the murderers, at least if they escape justice, at least form, face some um, shame or punishment. Um, I think sorting out some of that is very important. And I also think we do, you know, some of these things are cliches, but we do learn from our past and we need to learn from our past. And, you know, we see elements playing out today now, you know, nearly a century later uh, at Standing Rock, where with the oil uh, pipeline access, which has drawn so many protesters and so many demonstrators from various um, American Indian nations around the country because these are issues about tribal sovereignty 
even though the issues between the two cases are very different. Um, the central core uh, that is at stake is about tribal rights and tribal sovereignty, and that hasn't gone away. And so I think it's important to understand the Osage if we're going to um, deal with issues like that today. That was David Gran. Killers of the Flower Moon, Oil, Money, Murder and the Birth of the FBI was published today, the 20th of April, by Simon & Schuster. And Eleanor did also speak to David about the story of the lost city of Zed, and you can read the resulting article on the History Extra website. And now it's time for the latest history news with our website assistant, Ellie Cawthorn. A hidden crypt containing the lost remains of five 17th century archbishops has been accidentally discovered by builders in central London. The construction workers were lifting flagstones at the deconsecrated medieval church of St Mary at Lambeth, now the Garden Museum, when they uncovered a small tunnel leading to a tomb. After lowering a phone attached to a stick into the crypt's entrance, they discovered a pile of 30 lead coffins topped by a red and gold archbishop's metre. It is thought that the remains of Richard Bancroft, who oversaw the publication of the King James Bible in the early 1600s, are among those that were found. Director of the Garden Museum Christopher Woodward said, We thought there was no crypt because it's so close to the Thames that it would have been flooded. Every archaeologist in London has looked in this building, but nobody told us to expect to find anything. In other news, new scanning technology used to analyse a group of Viking swords has revealed that the weapons were simply decorative and never intended for fighting. The three swords, from a collection at the National Museum of Denmark, date from the 9th or 10th century and come from central Jutland, an area now in modern Denmark. Danish researchers analysed them using neutron scanning, a non-invasive technology intended to reveal the sword's chemical composition and the method of production. They found that the weapons, made through a technique called pattern welding, were not sturdy enough to have been used in combat. The research team stated that the discovery, quote, mirrors the changing of society during the Viking Age, when the sword was not solely a fighting tool, but an important element of elite culture and a symbol of power and status. Well, that's about it for this week, but please do join us next time when we'll be talking about the Islamic Enlightenment. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.